This morning, people were lined up outside the Supreme Court to listen to oral arguments in a historic case, one that tests whether Donald Trump can stay on the ballot in Colorado and potentially the rest of the country. People showed up for all different reasons. My name is Shelley Felton. I am here because I want to witness a historical moment. Yes, we can listen to the oral arguments online, but it's different to be in the room. Some came to support Trump, like Richard Thumb. The people should be able to decide who they want to vote for. It's not right for one state to decide, hey, this guy cannot be on the ballot because I'm in Texas. If you put uh, Trump can't be on there, we're going to say in Texas you can't put Biden on there. But they all agreed, this could be a defining moment for the country, the most consequential case involving a presidential election since Bush v. Gore in 2000. Supreme Court reporter Ann Marimo was inside the courtroom, and we caught up with her just after oral arguments ended. This is such a high-stakes, consequential case, deciding whether or not Donald Trump is barred from running for office again by this single court decision and has major consequences. Colorado's highest court had ruled that Trump committed insurrection on January 6, 2021, and therefore was disqualified from running for office again. This is because of a little-known section of the 14th Amendment, written just after the Civil War to prevent Confederates from returning to power. This case ended up before the Supreme Court after Trump appealed. And there's been a lot of speculation about how the justices would weigh these arguments. I thought it was going to be kind of a close call. You had leading historians and academics saying that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment clearly disqualifies Trump. But it became clear to Anne during the oral arguments it wasn't going to be a close call. Usually when I finish watching an argument, uh, oftentimes it's hard to know which way the justices are going to go. Today it became clear very quickly which way they were going to rule and there are questions for the lawyer representing the Colorado voters challenging Trump's eligibility were just much sharper and more skeptical uh, than they were for Trump's lawyer. The Supreme Court appears poised to keep Trump on the ballot. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Thursday, February 8th. Today on the show, a historic day at the Supreme Court. We're going to unpack the arguments the justices heard in Trump v. Anderson. And I'm joined by my colleague, politics reporter Amber Phillips, to talk about what all of this could mean for 2024. We'll hear argument this morning in case 23-719, Trump versus Anderson. Mr. Mitchell? So, Amber, today was a really historic day at the Supreme Court. And I'm wondering, can you just start by briefly telling us and reminding us what this case is all about and how did this even end up coming before the Supreme Court? Yeah, the case is, for as historic as it is, is actually pretty simple. Is Donald Trump an insurrectionist for his role in the January 6th attack. And because the Constitution essentially bans people who have been insurrectionists and taken an oath of office from serving from office again, should he be banned from ballots for running for president? And this question started out as something that a lot of anti-Trump hopefuls in legal circles were pushing, but they got traction suing in state courts because states are the ones that 
uh, handle their own presidential ballots. And eventually Colorado was the first court to say that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist and should be banned. So that got appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. And we heard our arguments about that today. And then also the other component, the stakes here, I think, is it's not just about Colorado, right? Exactly. The, this Colorado is the mechanism that brought this to the court. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Supreme Court was seriously considering what impact mm-hmm. any decision would have if they said, okay, Colorado, sure, go ahead and ban Donald Trump. Or, okay, Colorado, you can't ban Donald Trump from the ballots. Because I've talked to secretaries of state in um, swing states like Arizona who have told me, and the court knows this well, that they're all watching for what the Supreme Court does mm-hmm. to decide whether they should hear arguments banning Trump from the ballot. So, Amber, I want to now dig into what we heard at the court today. And I started listening to the oral arguments about maybe 10 minutes in, 15 minutes in, and I have to admit I felt pretty lost and it took me a while to find my footing. Um, there was a lot of, you know, obviously very legal terminology being thrown around, but but really the, there's some essential main arguments that were being made by the plaintiff and the defense. So I'm wondering first if we can just talk about the question of whether an insurrectionist can hold office. What were some of the things you heard um, the justices ask and, and the lawyers say? Yeah, well, Lahe, I was actually surprised how little that question came up. Mm. Um, to the average person, it seems like the central question, what is an insurrectionist? But it was not something they debated a ton. And in fact, John Mitchell, the lawyer for Trump's side, said at one point in response to a question from a justice, yeah, if if— Uh, someone were convicted of insurrection, then they couldn't be on the ballot. And just to be clear, under 2383, you agree that someone could be prosecuted for insurrection by federal prosecutors and if convicted could be or shall be disqualified then from office. Yes, but the only caveat that I would add is that our client is arguing that he has presidential immunity. Whereas you have other historians and legal experts who say you don't need a conviction for this 14th Amendment to take place. But that was like essentially it in terms of the conversation Mm. about whether Trump qualifies as an insurrectionist. Um, Although the chief justice, John Roberts, at one point said, it seems like we got to debate this uh, when we make our decision, essentially. Mm. What does an insurrectionist mean? Because it's such a broad term and it's not really a term that we in modern American politics have any context for other than January 6th. Insurrection is a broad uh, broad term. And if there's some debate about it, I suppose that will go into the uh, decision. And then eventually what we would be deciding, uh, whether uh, it was an insurrection when one president did something as opposed to when somebody else did something else. And what do we do? Do we wait until... And it does seem like one of the other questions that they did spend significant time on is, you know, the historical context and questions of um, whether the president is an officer. Um, Some of these other questions they spent significant time on, it seemed. Did did any of those stand out to you? And what were they saying? The justices were trying to interpret an amendment that got put in 150 years ago, and they were really carefully looking at each word and the meaning behind it, with one justice at one point saying, we can't know the intent behind these people who wrote it because they're not here anymore to tell us why they said this word versus this word. But they were really, really carefully looking at the technicalities of this amendment. And a lot of justices, even some of the liberal ones, 
used these arguments about why, for example, it doesn't specifically mention the president as someone who can get disqualified, just electors to the president. They use this as as reasoning to overturn Colorado's ban. Um, And so to me, Elahe, it seemed like the justices were really looking for a lot of these technicalities as almost like an exit ramp Hmm. to um, not doing something as cataclysmic as saying Trump can't be on the ballot. Because the 14th Amendment is like pretty clear. You could debate some about what's an insurrectionist, but they really jumped right into the technicalities. Well, did it really mean, why didn't they put president in? Or what's an office versus officer? They spent like a chunk of time on that. Yeah, well, let's talk about that because even though it seems like you know, they put aside this what sounded like the essential question. Why does it matter whether the president is an officer? And what were they saying about that? The text of this amendment says anyone who is an officer of the United States can be banned if they engage in insurrection after having previously taken an oath of office. But the argument against that, including a president, is because the Constitution regularly cites the presidency as an office, not an officer. Hmm. So they spent a good chunk of time debating what's an office, what's an officer. Mr. Mitchell, yes. stepping back on this, mm-hmm. a, a lot hinges on the difference between, in your argument, between the term office and officer. Yes. And this question of what's the difference between an office and officer came up a ton from some of those liberal justices to some of the most conservative Trump-appointed ones. Like, Justice Neil Gorsuch asked this question. I guess I'm wondering, what theory do you have from an original understanding or a textualist perspective Mm -hmm. why those two terms so closely related would carry such different weight? Because it's clear from the constitutional text that there are officers that do not hold offices under the United States. For example, the Speaker of the House and the president pro tempore, they're described as officers in Article One, who are chosen by the legislature. They also have to be officers if they're able to be covered. It was kind of like they went round and round in circles on this one specific question. Uh, and I, so I think it's likely that's a major part of their decision. Their decision does seem likely that Donald Trump can be on ballots. And what was striking to me as I was parsing through that is... Um, the justices who are really digging into that, maybe stepping into this or coming into today, I don't know if people were expecting it to fall along ideological lines, but it sounded like the justices who were considered the more liberal justices were also very skeptical and and digging into these questions as well, especially that president is whether the president is an officer question. Yeah, that struck me too, Elahe. Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who President Biden nominated to go on the court, She said she's concerned. She explicitly said she's concerned that the framers didn't put the word president in the very enumerated list in Section 3, which Mm -hmm. was to mean this text says, like, any specifically anyone who is a senator or a member of Congress or an elector for president or elector for vice president can't serve if they're an insurrectionist. And Justice Brown Jackson said, wait, why didn't they say president? That concerns me. But then why didn't they put the word president in the very enumerated list in Section 3? The thing that really is troubling to me is I totally understand your argument, but they were listing people that were barred, and president is not there. And so I guess that just makes me worry that maybe they weren't focusing on the president and, for example— Another debate where liberals piped up 
is having major concerns about allowing Colorado to ban Trump or any state from the ballot, is that one state could make a decision for the rest of the country. Justice Elena Kagan, normally a reliable liberal vote, said, Why should a single state have the ability to make this determination, not only for their own citizens, but for the rest of the nation? And I heard one of the more conservative justices, Amy Coney Barrett, say that same thing in the arguments. If we affirmed and we said he was ineligible to be president, yes, maybe some states would say, well, you know, we're going to keep him on the ballot anyway. But I mean, really, it's going to have, as Justice Kagan said, the effect of Colorado deciding. And it's true. It's like they, they felt like they shouldn't hand the power to decide who is a presidential candidate to states because there would be a domino effect I know we can't totally predict how they're going to rule in the end, but it did seem like just in the questioning and and the statements the justices were making that they were really hesitant to make a decision that in their questioning seemed like this is actually going to have massive national implications. This isn't just about Colorado. Right. One example that got brought up by these skeptical justices, Elahe, I, I think your point is spot on, was that Michigan is a major swing state. And in our polarized uh, nation these days, just a couple states and like just a couple tens of thousands of voters in each state could decide who wins. And Michigan has a Democratic Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson. So let's say, you know, Colorado is allowed to ban Trump. And so Jocelyn Benson in Michigan decides to ban Trump. And then that just completely ends the presidential election. The justices were very concerned about the amount of power that would hand states. And they seemed really hesitant to have that decision in their hands. You know, if you weren't from Colorado and you were from Wisconsin or you were from Michigan, and it really, you know, what the Michigan Secretary of State did is going to make the difference between you know, whether candidate A is elected or candidate B is elected. I mean, that seems quite extraordinary, doesn't it? I heard some of the justices say, well, it's not hard to imagine that all of a sudden you have Republican-led states banning Democratic candidates from being for president um, for dubious reasons and vice versa. In very quick order, I would expect, um, although my predictions have never been correct, uh, I would expect (laughs) that... uh, you know, a goodly number of states will say, uh, whoever the Democratic candidate is, you're off the ballot, and others, uh, the, for the Republican candidate, you're off the ballot, and it'll come down to just a handful of states that are going to decide the presidential election. That's a pretty daunting consequence. So the justices were just, like, really nervous about the domino effect of this. You know, the other thing the justices seem to spend significant time talking about are the other very clear instances that a person would not be eligible to be president, you know, such as being under 35 years old or foreign born. And and how was that? How did they handle that conversation as being distinct from this conversation around being an insurrectionist or not? Yeah. The essential question there was, is this a qualification to run for president, that you can't be an insurrectionist? And of course, you have a lot of liberals argue, yeah, you can't be an insurrectionist and want to run for president. That's what Jason Murray, one of the lawyers who argued for keeping Trump off the ballot, argued. Trump essentially should be disqualified for what he did. If this court concludes that Colorado did not have the authority to exclude President Trump from the presidential ballot on procedural grounds, I think I think this case would be done. But 
I think it could come back with a vengeance because ultimately members of Congress w- may have to make the, dis- the determination after a presidential election if President Trump wins about whether or not he's disqualified from office and whether to count votes cast for him under the Electoral Count Reform Act. The lawyer for Trump's side responded, well, it would be premature for the Supreme Court to decide now whether he can be on or off the ballot. That could be up to Congress if he were to win the election, because there is a clause here that allows Congress to chime in. Why does that change the initial determination of whether or not you fall into the category? I don't understand the fact that you can be excused from having been uh, in the category Why does that not make it a categorical uh, determination? Because we don't know whether President Trump will be excused before he's sworn in, if he wins the election, on January 20th, 2025. After the break, Amber breaks down the options before the justices now. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Amber, one other thing I was struck by was one justice in particular, Clarence Thomas. Uh, I know historically he doesn't really speak very much or at all during oral arguments. That's changed in recent years. But um, there was also questions as to whether he should have recused himself entirely from this case. Um, Did his line of questioning stand out to you? And maybe you can just talk a little bit about, about that pressure for him to recuse. Sure. Clarence Thomas is one of the most conservative justices on the court. And he spoke up first, um, asking the first question. Mr. Mitchell, would you, uh, uh, you didn't uh, spend much time uh, on your argument with respect to whether or not Section 3 is self-executing. So would you address that? And and, in doing that, your argument is that it's not self-executing, but then in that case, what would the role of the state be? Uh, uh, or is it entirely up to Congress to implement uh, the disqualification uh, in Section 3? His line of questioning wasn't necessarily the th- thread with which the, the rest of the court picked up on, but I think it's indicative of how right-leading this court has become, that especially in recent years, Thomas, one of its most conservative members, gets the chance to try to set the tone of the conversation with very skeptical questions for generally the more liberal side. And he was defiantly asking that first question, even though there was a growing chorus from Democrats specifically that he should not have even been on this case at all. That's because his wife was such a vocal voice in trying to overturn the 2020 election results. She's a noted political activist mm-hmm. and text messages that were released as part of the investigation to January 6th show she was like really, really adamant that Trump should stay in power despite the results. But it's entirely up to the justices to decide whether they recuse themselves. Mm. And Thomas didn't feel like he needed to. 
So, Amber, it does seem like the road for the plaintiffs for Colorado to keep Trump off the ballot is really steep. They they have to prevail on so many of these legal arguments. And then after hearing the oral arguments today and the questions that were asked by the justices, what happens next? Like, let's walk through what some of the outcomes of today could be. Yeah. Well, first, let me say, Lahe, I talked to some legal experts and our our colleagues are as well who agree with you that it just is very difficult to see how Colorado gets to continue to ban Trump from its ballot as well as other states. So uh, the justices, they have, I'm generalizing here, but three main options as legal experts see it. They could decide, surprise us all, and say Trump can't be on state ballots. Um, Just he was an insurrectionist. It's over. The 14th Amendment's pretty clear. That would be cataclysmic, uh, but it's the least likely based on how skeptical the judges sounded today to Colorado's argument. They could decide the exact opposite. Trump can be on all state ballots. He doesn't fit the definition of this 14th Amendment Section 3 clause, and they would list their reasons for it, Mm -hmm. and it might fall into those technicalities you and I discussed about. Is he an officer? Is he in office? Why didn't the lawmakers in 1850 put president in the clause. And that ruling would put things back as the status quo before this 14th Amendment case made its way through the state courts and up to Colorado. Trump could proceed as normal as a presidential candidate. The third option, Alahe, is they could decide what to do in the Colorado case very narrowly in a way that leaves it up to the rest of the states or even Mm. Congress to decide. Um, That's something that I've heard from secretaries of state that they really don't want to happen. (laughs) Because then then it's up to them, right? Then they're they're caught in the crosshairs here and they'd rather. It it almost sounds like, Amber, in some ways, everyone wants someone else to make this decision because they don't want to be the ones to make this decision. (laughs) Yep. I think that's smart. And and I, I also, but I think the justices, to their credit, recognize that by saying, well, hang on, if we let Colorado do this, Michigan could do it, and that would end the Mm. presidential election. And Mm. so maybe they're willing to catch this hot potato. Mm. Mm. And so when do we think a decision could come down? And yeah, we we do have to say we can't say for certain which way this is going to go, but given how it went today, it seems like it's going to go a certain way. Yeah, the justices, you know, they didn't have to take this case in the first place, but they likely recognize the extraordinary public interest in whether presidential candidate is an insurrectionist. And so that suggests to legal experts I've talked to that they could rule in the next weeks or within the next month Hmm. because there are lots of states that are putting out their primary ballots now. And of course, March 5th is this really key date in the Republican presidential primary that's Super Tuesday where 16 states worth more than 900 delegates, that's almost all of what Trump would need to win, are are up in just one day. So we could get a ruling pretty soon. Well, Amber, thanks so much for taking time to join us today. Thank you, Olahe. Amber Phillips is a politics reporter for The Post. You also heard from my colleague, Ann Marimo, who covers the Supreme Court. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Renny Svernovsky, Emma Talkoff, and Ted Muldoon, who also mixed the show. It was edited by Maggie Pemmin. And if you can't get enough of the nerdy, nitty-gritty legal arguments behind this case, my co-host Martine Powers had a really great conversation with a constitutional historian on Tuesday. So check out that episode if you haven't heard it yet. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.